This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm your host, Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about climbing sustainability, specifically in the Indian Creek area. This is the first of two Science Moab podcasts on the topic. Perception is often reality for these climbers. If they don't think that there's a lot of impacts in the, in the climbing area, they're not going to see them even if the, the impacts are there and measurable. And so we try to understand, you know, what, what are climbers' perceptions of the areas they recreate in? Uh, what do they say they're more or less likely to be moved by when it comes to adhering to certain rules? And use those data to develop palatable management systems that, that climbers can, can rally behind, ones that they'll want to go along with and, and enforce for the good of the, the resource. David Carter is an assistant professor of public policy and administration at the University of Utah's Department of Political Science. He is also an avid climber. David first collected data from Indian Creek climbers for a paper that was released in 2012. This year, he put out a more comprehensive survey of Indian Creek climbers at the request of the Access Fund, a climbing advocacy group. Can you just begin by describing uh, the current scene in popular climbing areas and why it's important to try to put some sort of scientific thought and energy into these places. Yeah, so um, in terms of of what's going on at, at our current climbing areas, our current crags, as we're seeing, as we're seeing in a lot of dispersed recreation uh, these days, increasing user numbers. Um, and we saw an acceleration during COVID of this, but it's a general trend towards more, uh, more and more folks visiting climbing areas and using these climbing areas. And they're recreating in these areas that are environmentally vulnerable, ecologically rich. And so we need to understand kind of what the impacts are of increasing user numbers on these areas. And what we're seeing in a lot of places like Indian Creek that are destination climbing places, that are places where people travel from across the country and even across the world to climb at is we're seeing the results of, of the impact of more folks. And that comes in the form of, you know, waste, trash, trails, uh, degradation of soil and soil, soil quality disturbances with wildlife. So, so we're seeing a lot of impacts from those increasing user numbers. And, uh, so in terms of, you know, why do we need to take a scientific approach to this? I think there's, you, you can look at that from a couple lenses. One is a natural science approach of understanding, well, what's the, what folks often refer to as the carrying capacity of these natural places. So like how many climbers and for how long can an area sustain uh, without suffering a lot of damage to say the ecological biodiversity or health of the area? And so that's one thing we need to understand better that we don't really understand very well in most of these areas. And then the other thing we need to understand from a social science perspective is, is how do we implement management systems that encourage sustainable use of these areas, um, especially in areas where you don't have constant enforcement, monitoring, and regulation of, of folks' behavior. So you're really relying on the users themselves to police themselves much of the time. And so we need to understand, like, what are the best ways to, to encourage that kind of self-regulation and regulation within the community? Um, so I think those are a couple ways in which we need to look at this from an evidence-based or scientific uh, perspective. 
of managing these areas. So what makes climbing areas different from, say, busy hiking trails or biking trails? Why not do studies in these areas as well? For climbers, you can't just put in more crags, more climbing areas. You can develop more climbing areas, but there has to be the rock to do it. So when it comes to Indian Creek, for example, you know, their folks are pushing out and developing more climbing on the cliffs that are less visited, but there are only so many cliffs there. Um, so that's one difference, I think, is, is the nature of the resource, the, the limitation, limited nature of that resource compared to other outdoor dispersed recreation amenities. And then another difference, I think, comes back to the nature of the climbing community itself. And it's changing and it's changing rapidly in some good ways and some not so good ways, I think. But uh, historically, climbing is what, you know, recreational sociologists will refer to as a lifestyle sport. And there's clear in-groups, clear, you know, folks who are (laughs) really deemed climbers um, and part of that community. And there's a a heavy tradition of of self-regulation in the community there. And folks have studied this among climbers, among surfers, among other lifestyle sports. But I think some of that tradition of self-regulation carries over into today as we try to sustainably manage these areas in some good ways and in some bad ways. Um, I mean, part of that culture has also been this idea that climbers are rebels and that's not helpful when we're trying to institute rules that are going to protect a resource. Um, So there are some aspects of that culture that we're trying to change. But I think those are two big differences is the traditionally cohesive culture that with a tradition of self-regulation, as well as a, a, a truly limited resource and more limited than a lot of other types of resources that we might see that dispersed recreators rely on. In thinking about the the approach to trying to find or uh, gain data or information on these uh, different critical issues, many of these areas, like you're saying, there's their co- there's a co-management approach. There's the climbers advocacy organizations that, like you're saying, the self-policed climbers, and there's also the government or land management agencies trying, you know, trying to work together with the climbers. So in your paper, you describe something called common pool resource theory, and I wanted you to explain it and how, how it's used to kind of assess the, the management of these areas. Well, I mean, a common pool resource theory is, you know, a, a theoretical framework that lots of social scientists will use to understand what we refer to as uh, collective action problems. And, and once you start to, to think in terms of common pool resources and common pool and public good problems, you start to see these everywhere. And so the basic idea here is that a, a common pool resources resource is a resource that is open access. So just about anybody can access the resource but it's depletable. And that means that when people use that resource, there's less of it to go around for for other users. Um, It's a basic governance issue. Probably the biggest one, arguably, that we're dealing with right now is is climate change, right? Like, why am I going to not drive my car if everybody else is going to drive their car? Uh, Because that's a cost to me and it's not going to make a difference in the long run. But we'd all be better off if we all didn't drive cars. And we see this in, in climbing areas. And when we think about the the depletion of the climbing area here, I conceptualize the ecological and environmental health of the area as being the resource that's being depleted. So if folks are using the area and misusing the area, uh, the cost to them individually of misusing the area is small or nothing, right? 
but it's a cost that's borne by everybody who uses the area and everybody really who cares about the area and its ecological or environmental health. And so here we have a basic collective action problem of how do we get folks to behave in certain ways that may be costlier to them than not, but that will benefit everybody. You know, folks have studied this from a variety of different angles. Uh, That paper that you're referencing from 2014 was built on the work of Eleanor Ostrom, who won the Nobel Prize in economics for this work, where she looked at there's, you know, kind of nine design principles or, or rules that you can institute that are more likely to lead to collective action in these types of scenarios. And that includes things like, you know, the folks who monitor behavior are the folks who, who are subject to the rules themselves. So, so self-monitoring tends to help in these situations, for example. And there's a bunch of other kind of ways that folks have looked at how do you, how do you try to incentivize, you know, these collective behavior, but it basically comes down to getting enough folks on board with adhering to some rules that might be somewhat costly to them, you know, costly in terms of time or effort, such that there is a culture or a kind of a general impetus among the group to now kind of informally enforce those, those norms. uh, So to institutionalize those norms and, And it's pertinent in these climbing areas simply because, you know, there isn't uh, usually somebody there to constantly monitor and enforce rules like from the BLM or another land management agency. Folks are largely left to their own own devices in these areas and, and their own behavior. And so it's really about helping folks understand what is proper or appropriate behavior for these ecologically or environmentally fragile areas. What is good behavior and how do you go about, you know, following those behaviors? Yeah, so you're trying to get a a group of people to act or to behave in a certain way, I guess. And I mean, before you even get to the point of trying to enforce a certain code of behavior, I imagine you're going out and collecting data of some sort. I mean, what, what data do you collect? I myself mostly do, you know, surveys and studies of climbers themselves, their perceptions and their perceived behaviors, their reasons for doing things. So uh, for me as an individual, it's, this takes the form of surveys. So surveying people on both what they do, what they perceive to be the case and what they care about and are more likely to do. Um, so to basically to understand what I would think of as kind of the institutional landscape of the community, that is like you know, what, what, what does the community care about? Uh, what do they pay attention to? How much variation is there in that? Uh, where is there agreement within the community? So that's what I do. But collectively, uh, what we should be doing is that, as well as combining that with data from the natural science side of things, understanding the landscapes which we're trying to, which we're using and trying to ensure sustainable use of so that we can understand both sides, right? So both the environment that's being impacted by climbers, as well as the climbers that are, are doing that impact. And I think both, both data sources are needed in order to really have any kind of effective management system. I know in uh, just this year, you put out an Indian Creek climbing survey with the Access Fund. But in 2013-14, when you first wrote this paper, did you have an initial survey or did you collect data some other way for that, for that paper? Yeah, that was a smaller study that was uh, interview based. I did that in concert with Friends of Indian Creek, 
which is the local climbing organization there in the Moab area. It was a small study. I did a dozen interviews. I went out and did some site visits um, to see if what I saw on the ground matched what folks were telling me in the interviews, but just trying to understand um, the management system there, the co-management system that kind of settled in. It, it's not a formal thing. It's kind of an informal arrangement that that the BLM had settled into at the time and to some extent still relies on in the area, but try to understand kind of what is the structure of that management situation and, and per the literature, what are the strengths and limitations of that, that management system? And then also trying to understand, you know, where, uh, where folks were following the rules or not following the rules that had been instituted through this like co-management process. And so that was that original study. So in this year, 2021, you undertook a, a broader survey. I'm supposing more than 12 surveys went out. Um, yeah. A survey of climbing, specifically in Indian Creek. So was that something you'd been planning on doing to get more information or did something uh, spark a, a need to do this? So this came from, this was initiated by Access Fund. They have a, a long history of uh, being engaged in management and stewardship in Indian Creek. They have over time kind of revisited their management efforts there and advocacy efforts and kind of occasionally revamped what they were doing uh, with changing contexts and circumstances. And I think they're kind of doing that again and launching this uh, stewardship program where they're going to have a couple of volunteers out um, in the field helping educate climbers. And so they kind of had this in the works, but they wanted to collect some more data. I think part of what they're really trying to do is, is develop a, as, as much as they can, a shared collective vision for what management looks like down there, not just of, of climbers, but among, you know, the landholders down there, the nature conservancy, the, the land managers. And they wanted to be able to represent as accurately as they could what climbers have been doing and what their preferences are in that area. And so this survey was part of trying to gather those data for, for Access Fund to be more informed going into some of those discussions, as well as as they develop their management and advocacy approach in the area. And so they approached me, you know, I had worked with them before on a nationwide survey in, in 2019 of climbers kind of generally, and they approached me and asked me if I'd be willing to help administer the survey. And I'm always keen to to run these surveys if I can. I see it as, it's a nice uh, opportunity for me to collect some data that might be useful in publications and the like. And I also, as a climber and kind of resource advocate myself, see it as, as just something important to do to help the, the community and the places that I, I like to recreate in as well. So, yeah. uh, and I love Indian Creek. I love, you know, the desert and anything I can do to help support sustainable use and management of the area um, I want to do. So yeah, right that's how I got involved. In the responses, did anything come out of the, the data that was unique or surprising to you that you hadn't known before or thought before? One thing that surprised me was a lot of the respondents to the survey had longer climbing tenures. They'd been climbing for a longer period of time. So you know, I, I think like three quarters of the folks who responded to the survey had been climbing for at least six years. Um, so, so pretty long time. And that, that's not the population that we see of climbers generally, you know, um, you know, so you have a lot more new climbers nowadays than you have, 
uh, folks have been climbing for a long time. But mm -hmm. when we looked at how long folks have been climbing in Indian Creek, there's a lot of folks who hadn't been climbing that long. So 21% of the respondents had been climbing for one year under in the creek, meaning they started climbing this year in the creek, another 20% in the last two to three years. And so what that tells me, tells me, tells us is that there's still a lot of folks that are showing up there for the first time or who are new to the area. And that just speaks, I think, to the, to the growth of the area. So I think I, I was quite surprised at how, how many new to the creek climbers we had in the survey. The other thing that did surprise me too is just kind of just the overwhelming support for Bears Ears National Monument among climbers yeah. Yeah. Um, was quite I, I, not super surprising, but definitely catches the eye for me. I think unquestionably the National Monument will attract more climbers. However, I think it, it'll attract more non-climbers than climbers. Right around the time I did that study back in 2009, in the early 2000s, we saw, I think what really drove people to to climb in the creek was popularization in the climbing media and the creek was just all over the you know timmy o'neill and all these like you know semi-famous climbers or famous climbers were like doing videos and talking about indian creek and it just became a really cool place to climb well david what got you interested in studying sociology and psychology i've always been interested in human beings and why they do what they do and how they do what they do as, as long as I can remember anyway, that's been an interest of mine. And then really what sparked it was I spent 10 months living in Bolivia right after high school, before I went to college. I had never spent a lot of time in a developing country. And I just like wanted to know, I was like, why do people live like this here? And why do things work the way they do here? And not in the, like, it just didn't make sense to me that things were so different to here. And now, now my big questions just center around kind of how we, in this like increasingly complex world, try to develop these policies and implement them. And they require the coordination, sometimes collaboration, and sometimes we just need people to fall in line, but uh, of different sectors, right? It's not just yeah. government. It requires private individuals, private businesses, nonprofits, all the whole gamut to do this thing we call governance. And so how do you do that? And that's kind of what I have been trying to pursue um, here at the University of Utah. Well, David, thanks for talking with Science Moab and sharing all that this great information on the climbing community. No, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. This was fun. Be sure to catch the second podcast on Indian Creek climbing when Science Moab talks with Ty Tyler of the Access Fund. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab is done in partnership with Utah State University Extension. Science Moab Media is by Sophia Fisher, newsletter by Rhonda Cook, our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes, and consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.